0: I think once you get beyond the point in chess where you're making one move blunders, patience immediately becomes a big factor. It's the simple concept also of realizing that sometimes you can make a move in a chess position just because it's easier for you to play than it is for your opponent to respond. You don't always have to be going forward in a very visceral, visible way in a game. It's okay to play moves that are just small, improving moves or throw the ball back at your opponent and force them to make an even tougher decision. But I see a lot of times from players where it's almost like they have this internal pressure to constantly do something in the position, and that immediately hurts them. You know, they always feel like they got to be moving forward. There has to be some thing they can put on a checklist. Maybe maybe this is a comment on our society in general that we feel, our, our hyper-productivity society, hmm. that we always have to be doing something in life, <laughs> but it's okay to play the position and just let things develop.
1: Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties?
2: Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal?
1: Welcome to the Chess Feels podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love
2: and hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver JJ Lang,
1: and me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder Julia Rios,
2: as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive: Why are we like this? Yeah. Julia, do you want to do the honors of the introduction?
1: No, you always do the introduction, JJ. You're amazing.
2: All right. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of the Chess Fields podcast.
1: Really special.
2: We teased a mystery guest in a previous recording, and we are here with our mystery guest. Would you like to introduce yourself, or should we
0: keep you anonymous? Hey, guys, this is John. I might as well say it right now. (laughs) Should we give them your last name?
1: If they can't tell from his voice, do they deserve to know?
0: Well, there is that
2: one review that asked about our podcast. Do their listeners even play chess? So (laughs) probably not.
0: Even waved at the camera, even though I know this is going to be an audio only podcast. Hi,
2: John.
1: We're not trying to brag, but we did get John Bartholomew to come on our podcast. It's fine.
0: Very happy to be here.
2: For those keeping track, that would make John our strongest titled player to date. We still are on our quest to never have a grandmaster on the podcast, but this is the closest we've come.
0: International master John (laughs) Bartholomew is joining us. Oh, I'm honored. I'm honored to have that uh, title for now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I am a little starstruck that you're here, John, because I feel like I talk a lot about how I really grew up on Daniel Naroditsky YouTube videos in my early chess days. And I don't spend enough time talking about the very true set of events in which I also found your fundamental series on chess and watched all of it. And it was so cool because it was all the same thing that kind of all beginner chess materials are talking about, control the center or blunder check. But the way you described it really clicked with me in a way that nothing else had. I think I watched it like three or four times over and over the first few months I was playing chess. I just loved it.
0: Amazing. I love to hear that because that was a series that I recorded. You guys might relate to this with content creation. I I recorded that series more or less on a whim and it somehow gained a lot of traction early on. And over the years, it's the one series people say, yeah, I keep coming back to that or I recommend it to friends, new players that I encounter. So it's really good to hear that it's still been been paying off for people. and, and
2: you- Oh, absolutely. A friend of mine from college who was not really much of a chess player had also independently told me he discovered that series. And now he's a very strong player, like over 2000 on chess and pretty much only watches your videos. And that's like his strategy for chess improvement. So you have a profound impact on the world.
1: JJ, who I appreciate is that?
2: It? My friend Griffin. We haven't talked about him.
1: Yeah, I've literally never heard of Griffin. I feel like that's made up.
2: Wha- Griffin's in my mental file only <laughs> under John Bartholomew. Like I don't think of him normally.
0: JJ just needed another data point to inflate my ego on this show. I appreciate that, JJ. (laughs) I just needed to show I have friends as well.
1: It is funny, though, how it tends to be the things that you sort of don't spend a lot of time planning that just feels like that whim that people seem to really gravitate towards. I think there's something to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so hard to predict what people are going to like in mass, especially if something goes viral or you make a piece of content. And the way you have it in your head about the popularity of it or how you feel about it, is often so disconnected from what people actually end up enjoying or clicking on the most.
1: Yeah. I'm so curious to ask you, Don, what have been some of the chess things over the years that you've been most excited about, which is sometimes different than what the masses are most excited about, if that makes mm. sense?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So I co-founded Chessable.
1: Oh, we've heard of that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's perhaps where like, the average chess player may know me, if not for the YouTube channel. But I have been you know, a big presence on Chessable over the years, going back to when uh, my co-founder and I, David Cramley, co-founded the company in 2015, when we wow. launched in 2016. So we've been around for a while now. And of course, Chessable, at this point in time, has been completely purchased by Chess.com. And prior to that, it was bought by Play Magnus. But I have been involved to some on some level over the years, even as a content contributor and just assisting the site in the last couple of years. So... That's, that always stands out in my head as like one of the biggest projects that I participated in in the chess world. And I'm especially proud of how we created a platform that allows people to actually earn a living as, as creators in the chess world. Yeah. Creating courses and interacting with their audience and this platform to actually have a means of, of earning a living through that. But on a personal level, I would say my coaching, I've been coaching more or less full time for about 12 years now. That's been a big thing for me. I've been lucky to work with so many different people around the world over the years. Grandmaster Andrew Tang is probably my most notable past student. <laughs> and in working Amazing. with him, even when he was just, just a master and all the way up to I am, for me, it was like a formative event as a coach. And I really do consider myself a coach and a chess educator. So having students like that, interactions like that really stand out over the years.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. And I have anecdotally personally heard some incredible reviews about your coaching.
0: Uh, Well, before we get into all that, I sense Julia really likes bearing the lead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You got to keep them wanting more, you know?
2: Well, so we were thinking today, I definitely want to talk about some of the things that stood out to me in my very formative one hour lesson with you that I had, (laughs) I guess it was a month ago now and some of the themes that came up there, particularly this idea of patience that I think will be of interest to our listeners. But I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about your journey from player to coach to content creator. And you've sort of hinted at this a little bit, but I was curious, first of all, you know, how do you see yourself primarily as a coach, content creator, or player? And more interestingly, how has that changed maybe for you over the years?
0: Yeah, I feel it's been pretty consistent for me over the years. I do primarily see myself as a chess educator. You know, you want the work that you put out and even your individual teaching to be entertaining and something that people look forward to. But um, I've definitely veered towards the educational side of things over the years. So the way I kind of look at it, chess has given me so much. And even if I never made a cent on my YouTube videos, let's say, I wanted to put something out there that would be helpful for people. And as it turns out, it's returned a lot to me over the years, even financially. But being in a position where you can help people and do so in a mass way via the internet, I think it's such an amazing opportunity that we are currently all enjoying here in the year 2023. So yeah, I'm very grateful for that. And that's why I see myself primarily as a chess educator. And I think that'll continue in the future.
1: How do you feel like the content creation pieces, John, have in any way kind of interacted with or impacted your own chess improvement? Do you feel like those things were additive, synergistic, subtractive? What do you think about that?
0: I guess there's this notion, maybe it's an old school notion nowadays, that uh, if you teach something, you've pretty much given up your hopes of ever mastering that subject or reaching like your highest level in in that domain. I know a lot of old school players, coaches believe that teaching is harmful. I personally have not seen that. I don't think teaching is necessarily beneficial to my own play, but I would never go so far as to say that it's been harmful. I think it's solidified a lot of concepts and things in my head over the years that maybe I only had like a shaky ability to explain prior to having to teach it. So probably it's a slight net positive, but maybe the other side of the coin is that, Certainly, you could spend that time that you weren't coaching or teaching on your own improvement, and that would certainly pay uh, greater dividends for your improvement. I've heard tons of people say over the years, oh, like you're working with amateurs. I could never do that. That's so boring. They just hang pieces all the time, which is true. <laughs> but hey. if, if you change the <laughs> no offense to all the amateur players out there, I still hang plenty of pieces. But if for me, like I, I guess the interesting part becomes like, how can I actually put myself in the shoes of the, the student? or the person watching the video consuming whatever piece of educational content I create and get into their head about how they improve. And I think that's actually a very nuanced thing, especially when you consider that most people that we look up to in the chess world as players, coaches, really mastered the game at a very young age. And I think that creates a dynamic where they, if they want to relate that knowledge, what they've learned over the years, they have to think pretty critically about the realities of not mastering chess at a young age. And what improvement in that fashion looks like, because it it looks a lot different than what they experienced.
1: That is so true. And you might have heard of this idea of the curse of knowledge. And it really is this idea once we accumulate the knowledge, how quickly our brain forgets about the experience or even the possibility of not having that knowledge. So we can be really empathic people who have such a disconnect or a gap between what other people might know or not know. And I think that comes through in your videos so much, John. So it's cool to hear how sort of thoughtful and intentional you've been about that. And that was really what I felt watching your series. Like I said, of it, it clicked for me in a way that something that I had heard dozens, maybe even hundreds of times before. Just hadn't quite sunk in. So you really do have such a knack for that. I mean, I really feel that watching your content.
0: Thanks. I appreciate it. And I do like a lead chess play stream pretty much every week where I play viewers for two hours.
1: Oh, yeah, I have caught that, actually.
0: Have you ever sent a challenge in on that?
1: I haven't, but I totally will now that I know you.
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: I only play chess with my friends because I'm shy.
0: Got it. Got it. (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) JJ, why are you laughing?
2: Why why would I not be? John laughed too. Ask him. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I thought you might be laughing because I also play chess with random people on Tinder.
0: Oh, yeah. well (laughs) That's different. That's for work.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's for research purposes.
0: I I do see a lot of chess and online dating crossover posts on Twitter, I got to say. I've even posted some myself. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I haven't seen those. Let's let's pause there. (laughs) Yeah, that goes back a few years. Just conversations I've had with people that suddenly turn chess related on, you know, Bumble or things like that. Are we talking pre-Queen's Gambit or post? Probably even pre. Did you notice that you became more desirable post-Queen's Gambit as a chess educator? I don't know about more desirable, but definitely as a conversational hook or a starting point, it's made things easier for sure because so many people have seen that. Or of course, the Hans Magnus thing. I've you know mm-hmm. got some questions over about that recently from <laughs> people that I might not have expected.
1: I feel like that would be such a satisfying feeling to be talking to someone in one context. Like we meet on a dating app and then they casually bring up chess and be like, oh, I play chess. And then like you play each other. They're like, yeah, I'm learning too. And then it's like, well, oh, I'm I'm an international master at chess.
0: <laughs> yeah, again, bury the lead. like Like you said, you got to you got to leave them curious.
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: I'm torn between two very different questions.
2: One is when it comes to trying to get in the head of adults who haven't mastered the game at a young age, what some insights are. And the other is, have you ever let someone win a game of chess on a date?
0: (laughs) Uh, You can pick which one you answer.
1: No, do the date one first, John, because we're on that Yeah,
0: I was going to answer that one first because the other answer will probably be a lot longer. (laughs) Let me put it this way. I don't think I've ever let someone win if I didn't think they deserved it, you know? So that's a Yes. Right. <laughs> that That is correct. <laughs> I've never let someone win on a date or in any other like, let's say I'm playing a little kid or something, because I just feel like they will know if you pull punches on them. And looking back even years later, I wouldn't want to win that way. You know, if I'm playing a little kid or something, I'm not going to like absolutely go out of my way to destroy them and humiliate them. But, uh, you know, I want them to earn it too. And they'll think back on that experience and probably probably know le- le- years later if you were actually playing seriously or not.
1: That's such a good diplomatic answer, John, but I really feel like it would be way better content if you were like, and then when I play children, I want to absolutely annihilate and humiliate them. No, that's what <laughs> he does
2: on dates. I'm like
1: children. <laughs> I feel so disoriented right now. I just assumed for absolutely no reason whatsoever that you're married. Have you ever been married? Are you married? No,
0: no, never been married. Very much single at the moment.
1: Oh, man, this is really odd for me because I really pride myself on my clinical judgment. You seem like someone who might be married to your high school sweetheart.
0: Could be my solid chess style. (laughs) Yeah, reliable play style. Who knows?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I I joke on stream that I'm married to the game, which, you know, (laughs) (laughs) may or may not be true. But uh, nope, very much single at the moment.
1: Okay, very good. Very good. So when you are dating, do you feel like you gravitate towards people who play chess? Is that a draw for you?
0: I would say it's definitely a bonus if they do. But like in my online dating profiles... I think I barely mentioned chess, if at all. I might have like one picture with maybe a chess board somewhere, like me playing chess on the streets in New Orleans against oh, Jude cool. Acres. I think I have a picture of that. But I got to say, I like it when it comes up just organically, when you talk to someone in any context, whether it's dating or something else. I definitely try not to lead with chess in any conversation I have with someone new.
1: Why do you think that is, potentially? I think
0: for me, I don't want to be just put in a box immediately like, oh, He's the chess guy. Uh, I got plenty of that back in school.
1: Yeah, you've been the chess guy.
0: Exactly. You know, when again, if you're a master, you grew up playing the game, reached a high level early on. It's hard not to be that chess person. You know, I was winning scholastic tournaments, going to nationals when I won the national high school championship when I was in ninth grade. They announced it on the intercom with the morning announcements the first day I was back at school.
1: Did everyone cheer for you?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I did did get a few cheers. This is your Joker (laughs) origin story. Yeah, no, no kidding. When I, funny thing, when I tore my ACL playing basketball my senior year of high school, I was on crutches for a month at school. And you, you wouldn't believe the amount of jokes that I had to field like, oh, did you move your rook a little too fast? You slipped? Like, how did that happen?
1: Oh my God, that would <laughs> piss me off so much.
0: Yeah, so you can kind of see where I'm coming from. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think it was those scenarios specifically that made me want to be a little more, you know, coy in how I reveal my very large involvement in the chess world. Like it is a huge part of my life, no doubt. But we're all human. We all have lots of interests. I think we should think about what kind of boxes we put ourselves in because usually you're putting yourself in a box if that's something that comes up over and over again and you're not sure why.
1: I just love everything that you've said and totally agree and... Now I'm so genuinely curious, what are some of those other areas of your life? I'm sure a lot of our listeners really only know you in the context of chess, in the chess box. What are the other things that you feel like really excite you and that you want to center in other relationships or parts of your life or in a dating context, for example?
2: It's usually pulling teeth to get Julia (laughs) to ask
0: questions to guests.
1: This is 100% true.
0: So this is I'm enjoying this. Yeah. (laughs)
1: I'm so genuinely curious.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for me personally chess is a huge part of my life, no doubt. Like it's work, it's passion, it's a hobby, it's something that I excelled at from a young age. But I would say outside of chess, like not to give a cliche answer, I'm a pretty normal guy. You know, I I enjoy reading. I've always got like audible books going or actual physical books that are dog-eared and, you know, I never have time to finish. I like to travel, I like to work out, stay physically fit. I've been doing high intensity workouts the past four months. That's been a big thing that's interested me lately. Cool. Uh, I kind of gravitate from interest to interest, really. So I think it's important to highlight that too when you're when you're telling the story about yourself and there is this central thing in your life that maybe in your head you would come back to. It's important to remind yourself that you're a diverse human with lots of interests too. Cause, you know, if chess disappeared tomorrow, I'd be fine. I'd be sad. But I would, I would surely find other interests, many other interests to replace it.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And JJ, if chess disappeared tomorrow, what would you be? You would just crumble.
0: Yeah,
2: I was wondering that I would maybe go back to reading books, which is something <laughs> that my partner reminds me I used to do when we started dating before I was playing chess all the time. The do you read chess, chess books, books now predominantly? They were not chess books. I was like barely playing chess. And I ha- I haven't really read too many non-chess books in a while. And I do sort of miss it, but my eyes hurt, you know, from reading. and. I can never get, I haven't even found a good comfortable position for getting into while I read. And that's honestly been the major barrier, but maybe I just haven't found the right books. So John, what have you been reading? And
0: Julia, what would you be if chess crumbled? JJ, have you tried the Audible books or just anything audio book related?
2: I am even worse with my ears than I am with my eyes. We've talked about like focus and ADHD on this podcast a little bit. And I don't know if this isn't necessarily related, but when it comes to learning styles, If I am listening and I'm not talking, I don't even have to be very talkative or a big part of the conversation. But if I'm listening passively, it like all becomes background noise and I cannot retain anything. I even realized this morning that I had had the Tata Steel stream on for about three hours and I couldn't tell you a single thing that was going (laughs) on because what it became after about 10 seconds was just Peter's fiddler talking in a very dulcet tone. (laughs) <laughs> and it was nice and I didn't retain anything from it. And that's kind of how audiobooks or even podcasts go for me.
0: Well, in fairness to you, chest stream coverage does tend to cater to that. You know, my eyes kind of glaze over at times too, but it is good to have on in the background. It's
2: ASMR, yeah.
1: Okay. John, can I try to redeem myself and my clinical judgment and guess what things you like to read?
0: For sure. Absolutely.
1: Okay. First of all, I'm actually gonna guess you read primarily nonfiction.
0: That's correct. Yeah, that's spot on.
1: Yeah. And I imagine you probably like to read. I'm torn between two things. I imagine you might actually like reading biographies or autobiographies from people you admire or things in the realm of self-improvement.
0: Yeah, that's that's spot on. <laughs> you nailed that. You're redeeming yourself in a, in a major way here, Julia.
1: Oh, that makes me feel so good. I honestly was afraid <laughs> that I had lost my touch and that maybe some of these places that I'm applying for postdoc would listen to the pod. And be like, I can't believe she thought John Bartholomew was married.
0: It's hard when you're married to the game, you know, it's it's a heavy burden to carry.
1: Uh, Cool. So what, tell us, what are some of the better things you read maybe in the last year?
0: Yeah, you know, I'd say for about three months, I was on a maritime history kick. So I love historical stuff. I was reading all these these books about these epic journeys by boat in centuries past, like 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. One that really stands out is Mutiny on the Bounty.
1: Oh, cool. There's
0: a movie about it. There's multiple books about it. But basically, it was a ship that it was mutinied in the Pacific. And some of the mutineers actually ended up escaping to Tahiti and then later to a very tiny island way in the remote Pacific called the Pitcairn's Islands mm. and ended up starting basically a colony there and hiding out from the British government who was trying to hunt down these mutineers. I read an account about this Belgian expedition to the Antarctic. It was really fascinating. And they get stranded in the ice. They get trapped for years, actually. I think about a year and a half or almost two years. So I really like stuff like that, but also the biographies, autobiographies. I'm reading a book right now. I think it's called Wanting. It's about uh, mimetic desire. You guys are familiar with this concept, kind of summarizing the works of Rene Girard and talking Whoa. about how mimetic desire plays such a role in our society across every aspect of human interaction. So I love stuff like that too. But you're absolutely right about the nonfiction. I think when I was younger, I gravitated towards fiction more, but I don't know if it's like the getting old or the ear part of my brain. I love the nonfiction stuff.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That, that doesn't surprise me, especially even when you were kind of talking about the creative work that you like to do and the content that you like to create. Just sort of recognizing, like I actually really like the educational stuff. Mm. I kind of stick to the basics. And there's something about it that I think really shines through when people gravitate towards these areas that are really authentic. And I can almost imagine if you were trying to create content that was really sarcastic or really (laughs) irreverent or (laughs) offbeat, it just wouldn't really work. Like that's not really who you are. So it's really cool to see those pieces kind of fit together. Like, yeah, even when I'm reading, I like educational stuff that's also exciting and adventurous, but it feels like you are someone who really knows yourself and is so comfortable in that space and so good at occupying that space. I just think it really comes through in your work.
0: Oh, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you saying that, Julia. And with YouTube and all the personalities, especially that we're seeing in the chess world, which, you know, I guess is a microcosm of what maybe works on YouTube in general and what gets popular and viral. We're kind of seeing that with the chess boom, you know, Levy in particular, is is one of the creators who's just absolutely blowing up. And totally. you know, in some ways, you look at that and you're like, could I do that? Is it possible that I could get to that level or anywhere close even in terms of popularity? But you kind of realize that you have to cater to your own strengths and uh, create authentic content like you were talking about, or just be your authentic self. I mean, content aside, I'm, I guess I'm approaching this from content creator's perspective, but it's so important to continually try to understand yourself and Even in your own chess game, I know you guys had Nate Solon on on the podcast a little while back, and you guys were talking about this, right? Like studying Mm -hmm. openings is almost like an endeavor in finding yourself and understanding yourself. And I really feel that way across many things in my life, especially as I get a little bit older.
1: Yeah, that's really cool to hear you talk about, John. And I think that that can be really hard to do, especially in an online space on the internet. We just have access to so many things. And it's kind of like you said, you can watch what Levy is doing and see how popular it is. And I think it's so easy to start making self-comparisons or want to kind of do something that we see is gaining a lot of traction. And I think it actually takes a lot to say, I'm actually going to keep my focus where it feels most authentically placed and almost not get sucked in all these different directions.
0: Yeah, I guess I think back to when I started my channel and started becoming a bit more of a no-name in the chess world. I, I always try to remember what initially attracted people to that style of content and that's what kind of anchors me. And I think that's my authentic content is the the chess fundamental series, which is I think I, love I it. made like seven years ago now. I have this playlist. It's called the standard chess series. It's basically 15 minute games, rapid games. And I'm almost to episode number 300 in that series, playing a long game and then talking through it as I play and doing analysis afterwards. And those are some of my best reviewed videos, the ones that people comment on and I lost some traction with YouTube. I really haven't been posting much there the past couple years. And just in the new year, I've started posting about every 2 days and bringing back the long-form content, the rapid games in particular. And you wouldn't believe the amount of people coming out of the woodwork. I think I just oh, made a comment. Yeah. I said in one of the recent videos I was like, "You know guys, I don't really care about views as much. I just love to hear from you and I love to hear about what you learn from this game or if you have comments on it." And I got something like 300 comments after not even having posted very much in the past couple years. People saying hey, like I keep coming back to these videos. I've watched them all. They've yeah. been super helpful. Please continue that. And you're right. If I, if I tried to do what Levy does, because he does it very, very well totally. and cater to like a wider audience, I think I could do it to an extent, but it wouldn't be what I'm most interested in and what I have found like my greatest point of impact basically in the chess world.
1: Yeah, and there's so much value in both of those things, but it's really cool to see someone doing what you're doing essentially.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I mean, the allure of money and status is is always going to be there <laughs> for people, right? I mean, but if you take yeah. away those two things, what is your content or your impact, really, if it's in a mass sense, like if you're putting things out there that are going to be consumed and you know taken in by many people, set that stuff aside, what value totally. are you bringing to those people? That's what you always have to I be asking that. yourself.
2: And I think something that's so interesting about a lot of your video series, the, especially the uh, fundamental stuff, is when I think about that stuff being very authentically you, absolutely, I get it. But that's the sort of stuff if you just ask me, how do you talk about the kinds of fundamental mistakes or things people should know and do something almost educational without actually knowing who you're teaching or without actually knowing who your audience is or where they're coming from, especially you talked about being so interested in getting to the heads of these people. And now that makes a lot of sense to me, you know, in a one-on-one lesson or a group lesson. But I'm interested what has informed the way that you make those videos or teach or explain things when, to a certain extent, you don't know who's going to be watching them and you're still passionate about explaining things in a way that is meeting people where they're at.
0: Yeah, great question. And I guess that can maybe be seen in the slight differences between some of the series that I have, some of the long running ones. So I have another series called Climbing the Rating Ladder, Mm -hmm. where I play players at different rating levels, I'd say mainly concentrating in the... Let's call it like 900 to 1600 range. That's where a lot of viewers are at. And I try to talk about the typical mistakes that I see at those rating levels. But in playing games against individual players, which I seek randomly on chess.com, it's really a crapshoot. You know, like (laughs) you can get a game where someone just blunders a piece out of the opening and you're trying to make it instructive, but there's not a whole lot to say other than they just like lost their night on G5 out of the gate. (laughs) And you can have a game that really pushes you to the limit and that. You know, I've even lost climbing the rating ladder games before against much lower rate of players. It's, it's happened in the past. So again, for me, the big challenge that I enjoy is getting into the heads of the viewers across a wide rating range, like you were talking about, and trying to basically explain like what I'm thinking about in the clearest possible way and the typical things that I think people should be thinking about. And maybe it helps that I have a pretty logical, intuitive style. I was at a chess camp one time, actually in Nebraska, JJ. Do you know International Master Keaton Kira?
2: Yeah, I don't think he's here anymore, but he definitely still has roots in the area.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's from uh, Lincoln, and we grew up playing scholastic tournaments. We're good friends. I've known him for many years. And I went to a camp one time by his coach, Grandmaster Moran Shear, and he nailed my style right from the jump. After seeing me in camp for just a couple of days, he's like, You know, John, you're very strong, and you you seem to know like where the pieces should go, but you don't really like to calculate if you don't have to. And even though I was, I think I was in ninth grade at that time, that really resonated with me. You know, he he was in effect saying I'm a little bit lazy when it comes to calculation, but I actually think that has been a big strength in my teaching style. Mm -hmm. Because just today, someone commented on one of my videos. They're like, when I watch your videos. It looks very simple like I almost convinced myself like I could do that.
1: <laughs> totally. I yes, I totally resonate with that.
0: <laughs> and I feel the same way when I watch Magnus or Hikaru play sometimes and you know they're explaining what they're doing. <laughs> you almost convince yourself sometimes that you can do it. So, yeah, that that's been an interesting phenomenon and I do think my style actually helps me make videos because I've never been like a big dynamics guy, like massive calculator. I've never tried to create chaos on the board unnecessarily and that helps I think with with teaching it. This
2: is this is a perfect segue to some of the things I want to talk about. But first, I think it's great that Keaton's teacher essentially tries to give you this little dig, this little roast about <laughs> your style, but you're like a high school boy. And so your response yeah. is, that's it. That's the brand. That's who I am now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And he was spot on with that grandmaster Shear, who passed away recently, unfortunately. So that, that was very prophetic what he said to me at that time.
2: Yeah. So one thing for listeners, I had a very informative lesson with John, recently. And it was great because I'm trying to figure out how to take chess more seriously, even as a Full-time chess teacher, content creator, etc. And something that John said that was really eye-opening was that a glaring area for improvement in my play was a lack of patience. And patience is something that's come up a little bit because we've talked about in one of the early episodes we did on aggression about how a lot of more beginner players have this idea that if they're attacking something, if they're making a threat, if they're offering a trade even, that would be an aggressive move. And what they end up actually doing is trading off all their best pieces and clarifying the situation into something pretty sterile or just straight up bad. But they think they're being aggressive because if they're not making threats, what are they doing? And not all threats are equal, et cetera. So the idea of being able to keep more tension on the board of keeping tension in the pawns or keeping possible pawn breaks or not just trading pieces whenever you can is something that I know comes up a lot when I'm working with people in that 900 to 1600 range, they just want to force everything through. And then my takeaway from that was, okay, cool. I'm not going to play the pawn break the second I see it. I'm not going to force the trade the second I see it. And therefore I'm a patient player. And what John kind of hammered into my head is it's a lot more than that. And you're still relying way too much on calculation. You're still relying way too much on trying to execute your ideas the second you see them. And that is holding you back in certain ways. So I kind of was interested in hearing you talk a little bit more generally about how you think of patience or your intuitive style in chess.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think once you get beyond the point in chess where you're making one move blunders, patience immediately becomes a big factor. And it's the simple concept also of realizing that sometimes you can make a move in a chess position just because it's easier for you to play than it is for your opponent to respond. You don't always have to be going forward in a very visceral, visible way in a game. It's okay to play moves that are just small improving moves or throw the ball back at your opponent and force them to make an even tougher decision. But I see a lot of times from players, let's say, I'm just going to throw out a rating range here, 1600 to 2200, pretty wide rating range, where it's almost like they have this internal pressure to constantly do something in the position. And that immediately hurts them. You know, they always feel like they got to be moving forward. There has to be some thing they can put on a checklist. Maybe maybe this is a comment on our, our, our society in general that we feel, our, our hyper productivity society, hmm. that we always have to be doing something in life. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but it's okay to play the position and just let things develop. You know, and in, in football, I guess they have that term, like let the play develop. You know, the the ball gets hiked. You've got uh, the offensive and defensive line, but it's not like the ball's gonna go immediately to where you expect it to go. There's gonna be blocking, there's gonna be little gaps that are created, and a good running back can wait and see which way to go. I think as a chess player, you have to cultivate that skill and that awareness of when that's appropriate. Like Certainly, you have to calculate and there are moments where you just got to do the nitty gritty work and buckle down and find the best move in a specific position. But I'm glad you brought that up, JJ, about patience because that is one of the major themes that I talk about with players around your level.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I can probably throw in a study and put in the show notes one of the games that we talked about. But there is a moment where I was playing somebody maybe 100 or 200 points lower rated. And the major takeaway John made was we're probably up to move 30 or so. And for the first time, my opponent has to make a difficult decision. Because I was navigating the game a certain way, but pretty much all of their choices were straightforward or all of their goals were straightforward. Mm. and saying if you're if you're a higher rated player if you're a stronger player why did you let them go 30 moves without ever having to really decide what they should be doing
1: i wonder jj if there's a sense where that can almost feel satisfying or like what you should be doing almost like great i'm driving the game like i'm the one who's actually dictating the style of play or the quality of the game or the lines when actually it's like what john described of you're actually making your opponent's job for the first 30 moves really easy and kind of narrowing what their options are. Yes. So for a player that's actually lower rated than you, maybe what is more useful is to force them to really calculate and think about a broader range of options.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you said that because you're right. It's not like I was just completely (laughs) just completely wrongheaded and had no idea that I shouldn't be playing this way. It definitely and I think some of it might come from difference in styles if I grew up playing a much more tactical, chaotic style and an opening repertoire that catered to that and have slowly been changing into trying to be a more universal, or I guess the PC term for that is old man chess (laughs) the kind of player. But I think as a result, sometimes I get into this idea of I'm trying to play what maybe in a King's Gambit when I was 16, you do really want to be (laughs) dictating the pace of that game. Otherwise you just have a shitty position from playing the King's Gambit.
0: And to add on to this, I know you and you and I talked about this, JJ, Mm -hmm. but I hope listeners think about this simple concept. Let's say you're higher rated than an opponent. Could be a lot higher rated, could be a little. Let's just call it, I don't know, 200 points higher rated, just for the sake of simplicity. And you think about the type of game that would allow you to outplay them and get the full point. What does that look like? I've always thought that type of game is one where I give my opponent the most chances, the most choices to go wrong throughout the course of the game. Exactly. Right? It's not going to be a direct attacking game with lots of individual decisions that are fairly forced and narrow, you can try to win like that. And maybe you will. Maybe you'll win based on better calculation or something. But I want to play a game where it's your move. You have 30 different possibilities right. versus it's your move. You're in check and you only have two legal moves. How do you outplay someone like that? It kind of comes down to calculation and you're risking a lot if the game gets sharp because you, you might miscalculate. We all do. And from the games where I've seen upsets occur, that's often the storyline is a higher rated player tangled with a lower rated player in a sharp position or the game got dynamic and one of them slipped and it could be the higher rated player.
2: And to add on to that, I think I found, because one of the things that I've been trying to work on or learn is stamina and consistency because part of climbing the rating ladder in an area where there aren't a lot of or any active higher rated players is you don't really get those opportunities to get a ton of points from one game by beating somebody 200 points higher than you and so it's all of these you get four or five points a game and then if you lose a game that wipes out your last two tournaments of progress so thinking more of how do i consistently go three and a half out of four or four out of four and realizing that even in a lot of the games where i blow it in one of the last rounds our tournaments where in the early games, even if I out calculated my opponent, I was also just tired. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a kind of fatigue that can come out of slower, more flexible, patient games. Like, for instance, they might go longer instead of ending on move 20. True. But there is a unique kind of fatigue of, okay, maybe my last game was only two hours, but I have another game starting now. And I just spent the last two hours calculating the full time and I out calculated them and I won. And <laughs> I'm spent. And I kind yeah. of wish I just got into an endgame. But I, I also wonder for some of our listeners in that 1600 to 2200 range, you know, I'm curious what their thought was when you asked this question of th- how do you think you're going to beat them? Because I do think, at least for a lot of the sixteen to 1800s I teach, that they think the answer is immediately, tactically, that's how I'm going to mm-hmm. win. And I don't know if it's because a lot of them haven't had a lot of experiences playing these endgames, but there is definitely something to be said. For having the experience again and again of, especially with kids who are just way too eager to trade and way too eager to get into these quote unquote drawish end games. And then just start going wrong in all sorts of ways that you couldn't imagine. Mm-hmm. And it can be really <laughs> gratifying to be, to be like, oh, okay, now you're showing the difference in strength. I mean, like I had somebody who was 1800 when I was 2000 who had this wonderful tactical sequence that forced Queens off the board on move 10. And then he offered a draw. Then he offered (laughs) a draw, move 11. Then he offered a draw, move 12. And then I had like an outside pass pawn by move 20.
0: I think we've all played that type of person at some point in our chess career. (laughs) The draw,
2: draw, draw. (laughs) But I was trying to keep queens on. So they out-calculated me to get what they wanted. They just Uh thought that they earned the draw because it was boring. And realizing, okay, this this, this is way easier. But there's also something, and I was wondering if you could speak to this. There's something really scary about, to me at least. About not trying to play for the calculation because it feels almost as if yes, I could go wrong. It's within my control. It's it's there's a sense in which it feels like it's all within my control, right? If we're just calculating, if I miscalculate, well, I deserve to lose. And if I'm better than them, then maybe I should be able to calculate them. But if we just keep playing an equal position and I'm giving them chances to go wrong, what scares me is well, what if they don't? I'd rather feel like I always have the opportunity to calculate further. Then almost put the ball in their court to to air, because what if they just don't?
1: JJ, that's such a good question. That was really what I was trying to get at when I was observing. I can imagine why you would be playing that way, because it mm. makes you feel like you have that locus of control. Like I am able to really contribute to the direction this game is going and I'm making decisions and I could draw some parallels in thinking about it. As almost an anxiety-driven style of play, like oh, mm. this feels soothing in a way. This this feels like I have some control over something that where there's a lot of uncertainty.
0: It's funny you guys say that because I feel like I have control when I'm playing in this slower, patient style. Yeah, maybe it's like but, deferring to my experience, which is what a lot yeah. of this conversation is being driven by. Like, do you have more experience in chess in general or in certain types of positions than your opponent? But it's interesting to you guys here to, to hear you guys take kind of the opposite perspective.
1: Actually, I think that's really compatible, John. I think that you are accurately identifying that you have more control. <laughs> I totally I do. Whereas I think in the other instance where we're playing in this way that feels less passive, maybe, like more active and has that sense of control, it doesn't mean it's an accurate sense. Our anxiety is not necessarily accurately picking up on reality or what the threats are. So Mm. I I do imagine that your experience is playing a role in that. Because you have so much experience, you sort of correctly identified that the real ability to have a sense of control and have this style of play happens when you're actually not trying to force more chaotic or more narrow lines. like Mm. I I imagine that does come from your experience.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's maybe just that confidence of knowing that you're not going to get blindsided by a tactic from your opponent at any point. Or knowing that uh, the chance that you just straight up blunder a piece in the position is pretty low. Like you just have a feel for right. the fact that that's not going to happen. Yeah, there's yeah. And, and some of this is pretty nuanced and also stylistic. Like I should throw the caveat out there. I am, as I've said, a, a pretty solid strategic player. I like calmer positions for the most part. I tend to have stable results. You know, when I when I've right. been competing in higher level tournaments, norm tournaments and whatnot, I'm kind of the guy who can go like plus one plus two maybe pretty consistently. And if I have a bad tournament, it's probably minus one or minus two. (laughs) I'm usually not going minus five or plus five. (laughs)
1: Yeah. There's really something to that. I also wonder, John, when you're talking about it's also the style of play, I imagine that throughout the game, you're also automatically more likely to be making decisions that create a position where those chances for blunders or big tactics from either side are not that likely. You're actually trying to set up a position where you don't have to calculate.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know JJ and I have talked about that with some of the openings that JJ plays. <laughs> like, you're okay with if I talk about your openings, right, JJ? Which yes, ones, John?
1: <laughs> no, no one has any idea what you're about to say. We right. can't think of anything. Well, I know the
0: Benoni is kind of a meme on your guys' channel, so <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I was actually going to say Nidorf instead of Benoni. So Both you know, of those were...
1: things, yeah.
0: Because I feel like when you play the Orph as black, like it's such a high caliber. Obviously, totally. objectively, one of the best openings in chess. One of the best defenses against e4. If you want to boil it down to a sub-variation defense against the Open Sicilian, but it's demanding. Like I don't know yeah. that a lot of what I'm talking about would be relevant to a player who plays the night Or regularly at the let's call it two thousand plus level like JJ is right because people know a lot you're getting deep into the later opening stages early middle games where you know you might be playing someone who has a lot of knowledge or understanding about that particular line. I was suggesting maybe JJ look at the con Sicilian as an alternative because I think that caters to a lot more to what I'm talking about or you can get more flexible positions
1: Don, did you know I play that?
0: Oh, you play that? I had no idea. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. Oh, that really
0: warms your heart. (laughs) I'll, I'll send you I'll
2: send you my con games from last summer when I was trying to make that switch and you'll understand why I went away from it. And I'm usually not the person who's like, oh, this opening isn't for me. I'm just like, learn it better. I don't know if it's just that I have no familiarity with like French structures, but I was just getting into a lot of cramped positions but also a lot of positions where I had no feel for what dynamics I needed or I had no flexibility and it was just Mm -hmm. a very strange it would be interesting to actually figure out why all those games went so terribly but I've been playing the classical Sicilian which feels like the best of both worlds in that I love the classical
0: too yeah it's a great one
1: John I would love to hear your thoughts on this because JJ and I really went back and forth and I know I'm biased and I can't have this conversation because I play the con and I want me and JJ to always do things the same. <laughs> but I'm curious to hear why you sort of gravitated towards that or recommended that in the first place.
0: Broadly, I think the Khan has a lot of appeal within the Sicilian because it's just as good as the Night Orph up till probably I am GM level. Night <laughs> Probably you could argue that it's it's even better statistically because <gasps> the value of getting someone out of book, like the amount of times I've seen sub 2,200 players out of book against the con on move five versus the Night Orf, it's not even close. Like, people know what to do against the Night orf, And it's kind of a crapshoot. Like, you have to prepare for a lot of variations as Black that White can throw it. But uh, the con, like, people tend to start thinking pretty early once you put your pawns on E6 and A6. <laughs> like It's it's kind of amazing. Even at my level, I've seen people not really being prepped against that line. But I
1: even once posted on Twitter some positions that, that essentially were saying, I literally play the con because people are out of position or straight up blunder on move six. Yeah,
0: e- well, it's known that the con is one of the few variations where it's not good for white to castle queenside. You know, adopt that plan with Bishop E3, F3, mm-hmm. and right. D2, castle queenside. Against the con, you can punish that pretty quickly. Yeah. You play queen c7, bishop b4, d5, sometimes e5. Whereas that's a good default plan. Yeah, that's true. You can
2: kind of wing it like that against the knight orf and get in a pretty okay position unless black super booked
0: up. Yeah, and then tons of other lines like classical Knight orf, obviously dragon, like white castle and queenside is a huge portion of the theory and it's right. dangerous. So with the con, I feel like directionally, you're not sacrificing much soundness, but you can bring the game into waters that are easier to control for you. And although it's very flexible, if you have experience in it, I, f- I personally find it to be a much better practical weapon.
1: Oh my God, John, I want to do a con lesson with you. If you ever need YouTube content and you <laughs> want to do that, please choose me. I will <laughs> I will be the best student, and I will try so hard.
0: You should check out my introduction to the hedgehog, which can happen in some con lines.
1: I have actually seen that. Yeah. Nice. I, yeah, I like hedgehog positions a lot. Content. Oh my God, you're oh. so stupid. <laughs>
0: Very okay, nice just, message, just don't Jenny.
1: say no. You don't have to say yes, but just just pl- let this. Oh, yeah, event. no, I'll keep,
0: I'll keep that in mind for sure.
1: But then, then what if it goes too viral and then people start getting good against the con as white?
0: That would be a good problem to have, though. There's something pretty satisfying about it. You put those pawns on E6, A6. You control the totally. two squares that are traditionally weak in the Sicilian. For black, D5 and B5. In yeah.
1: general, the E6 Sicilians actually felt really intuitive to me in a way that D6 Sicilians, I just felt like I'd been struggling with the Sicilian. So JJ was like, no, you really ought to play the Sicilian. It suits your style, but try the con and it was such a good fit.
2: Nice. That's why I don't listen to her when she's like, you should play the con. It's like, I know who taught you how to play it. You're <laughs> not going to convince me.
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's coming full circle.
2: There's also, I, I, I don't know why we're talking so much about the Sicilian, but I'm here for it. There's also something nice about openings where if they don't play the open, you have a similar setup that can be relatively effective. And so the E6, A6 sort of setup against a lot of closed Sicilian type lines still makes a lot of sense where maybe sometimes you don't need to play D6 or you're trying to play D5 in one move or the pawn can stay home on D7. Or at least you know because you've played E6 to maybe not play G6 as well and create that hole. So there's something kind of nice about not having to learn a whole separate body of theory when they don't Mm. play the open Sicilian.
0: Absolutely. And there's a lot of nuance to this, too. You know, I'd hate for someone to listen to this and be like, oh, like, I should never learn the Night Orph because John said so. Like, absolutely not. Night Orph is a great opening. But yeah, it's. I think people have to consider a little more closely what interests them in a chess game. Like, what type right. of game do they want? Like, do you want the pressure of having to know a lot of theory in a highly visible line? You know, same thing if you were learning, like, I don't know, the Petrov or the Berlin or something in your hundred like I'd argue that probably doesn't make a lot of sense even just for your own enjoyment but you may get a different answer from from other people and learning high quality openings is probably never a bad thing but as you gain more experience and you see what you actually encounter out in the wild in your games and what you like right. that that can definitely direct a shift in your repertoire
1: I think that is such an important point because I think people can be learning openings and feel excited and even do a chessable course or see Levy play his 10-minute introductions and say, oh, I really like these lines. And I almost feel like what should actually potentially be guiding people's decisions about which openings are really a good fit for their play style is what happens in the middle game. What happens once you get out of book? To me, it seems like more what could potentially be guiding that decision.
0: And I think a lot of people are influenced by top players. And what they're really saying when I like this is, I like MVL playing the Neidorf and the crazy games he gets into and somehow does really well with it. But do you want that stress yourself? (laughs) You know, like that's uh, 20 years of knowledge probably from him and studying that theory pretty much every day. I think for most people, it's going to be more practical to choose something that makes more sense to them.
2: I think it ties back into the conversation we were having about control, that there's something Mm. that has that like illusory sense of control or sham control of I've memorized all of this shit in the night orf, so I should be good to go versus I'm out of book on move seven in the con. What if I don't know what to do? And then you realize, oh, the reason these variations go up to move 25 in the night orf is because you need to get this far to still even have a chaotic position where you need 20 years of experience to figure out what to do. But it feels like you should be in control because you quote unquote knew the moves, but whether that's really a sort of control that's actually useful. I think that John's making a really good case for it not really being control, even if you quote unquote know what you're doing.
1: JD, that was so well said. I, I think that you are right on the money. And I love the way you phrase that.
2: I'm just here to synthesize you guys. <laughs>
1: yeah, but the illusory sense of control. And that that comes up in my therapy all the time. That's one of the indicators that anxiety is really in the driver's seat. It's like this is a situation where you'll never have perfect control. Life is not under your perfect control. <laughs> So what are the things that are showing up or what are the things that you're doing to give you a sense of control, which is different than having control. And that was the distinction I was trying to make when John is talking about, oh, when I'm playing this patient style of play and really kind of broadening the options for my opponent, I feel in control. (laughs) Like, yeah, that actually seems more accurate. And
2: that's something that I see all the time in these 1600, 1800 levels of somebody spends more time than they need to memorizing. And if they annotate their games for me, they'll make a comment. Like I knew that my opponent didn't play the most accurate move, which probably means this isn't covered in my course, or this is mentioned no. as like a sideline or like the third choice, but then their then their next sentence might be, and I really hope it's not, but it's usually. So I wanted to figure out how to punish it as like, oh man, <laughs> you might not even know if this is a blunder or an error or like minus 0.2 worse. Than the others. Exactly. But you're but you want to use your knowledge of this isn't the most testing move to try and get a forcing result when you might not have a great feel for this position at all.
0: Yeah. And I think that partly gets back to what we're discussing about feeling like you have to do something all the time. Yeah. Like, unless it's an outright blunder, are you really going to be able to punish some slight deviation from what is in a chessable course or something on move 20? Like, I don't know. Probably not. And how often have people had the experience where They've, they put all this work into a specific variation. They feel really, really booked up in a line and in game, their opponent plays a move that wasn't in the course or wasn't considered critical, but it's totally reasonable. And it's just a game of chess after that. And yeah. then they immediately go wrong. Cause yeah, maybe JJ, they're, they're trying to punish it or they're so mentally disoriented. Oh, they didn't play the move that they were supposed to play. And then they get a, a far worse position.
2: There is yeah. something, by the way, one All thing side. I really like doing with chessable courses mm-hmm. is looking at them for the other side. And if I'm like going through the classical Sicilian now, it's like, let's find an early deviation for white in this course for black that Sam Shankland kind of glosses over in two or three variations. But mm-hmm. the variations aren't terrible for white. And I kind of like that position. And there you go. Now I have a new idea for white, because apparently it's not considered critical. And, it's, and if I spend a little bit of time thinking about it, then I might be able to get a really comfortable game is white. That just spoke to me when I saw it. That also I know isn't what players who study this course is black are being told to book up on. So that's almost my favorite thing to use those for is what are things that people are saying aren't outright bad, but also aren't saying you should study
0: really hard. That's what I want my repertoire to be. Mm, Yeah, that's an interesting technique. I like that.
2: Something
1: that you were saying earlier, John, just made me want to ask you, what do you think of as being your go-to rep And maybe what has it even been over the years and how has that changed and what kind of guided how you found the openings that you really click with?
0: So I started out as an E4 player and I played E4 exclusively up until probably I was about 2300 or so at USCF. So E4 was my bread and butter. I definitely gravitated more towards the concrete style of chess. Not crazy, crazy out there with E4 openings, not playing like King's Gambit and Smith Mora and stuff like that, but you know, mainline open Sicilian. Yeah, I played Italian game like the Greco Gambit a lot growing up. It's still one of the top openings I recommend for people at lower levels, especially. So I think there's a lot to be said for having an E4 base when you're starting out in chess. I really do think that's probably the way to do it. Like get exposure to open positions, open games. And once you've gathered some experience, then maybe consider branching out. Probably around the year kind of dating myself here, but like 2003 maybe, I started encountering better players. I was a master at that point. I was still pretty young. I was in high school. And I just kind of found myself looking at closed and semi-closed openings a little more. And there was a really popular book series that came out by Grandmaster Alexander Halifman. He's the former FIDE world champion. Um, Kind of one of those world champions people forget because it's like the FIDE one, non-unified, but he was world champion. And he wrote. He's wrote multiple series of books uh, around opening repertoires, but one of them for me that was pivotal was openings for white according to Kramnik. Oh, And it was cool. an, an entire repertoire on one knight f three as white, based on Kramnik's Ooh. games and play. So That's- I, I just love that for some reason, and that became like my main weapon. I started using from the white side, and you quickly find out if you play that it has a lot of transpositional qualities. You get into Englishes, but you can also easily. Go back into a d four opening. I can easily transpose to the King's Indian, but you avoid certain stuff like the Nimzo Indian, the Grunfeld, the Benko, the sure. Benoni. <laughs> the Benoni uh, is kind of defeated by one knight f three from the white side. So well,
1: you'd be surprised.
0: <laughs> hey, there's still ways. Black defeats the Benoni, not white.
1: <laughs> That's black true. has
0: the yeah the the locus of control.
1: <laughs> <laughs> back to the locus of control. <laughs> yeah.
2: I can go all the way back to move three to know why I lost this game.
0: <laughs> so in a roundabout way, I started learning closed and semi-closed openings from one night F3. I started playing D4 more, cool. which I would probably consider my main opening now. I wrote cool. a D4 course for Chessable. That's a free course. It's like 45 variations. It's real compact rapid
1: Yeah, I've actually gone through that one. JJ, let's sneak in our Chessable ad.
0: Chessable,
2: if you want to memorize more than you need to. Chessable. <laughs>
1: created by John Bartholomew.
2: Right,
1: come on, people. It sells itself.
2: Chessable. John left before they started giving you 1,000 variation courses.
0: <laughs> the, yeah, the lifetime repertoires have been very popular. I know you guys talked about them with Nate at length. Yeah, I've always gravitated towards the like, more compact courses on Chessable. That's why I, I intentionally like capped that D4 repertoire for white at 45 variations. I was going to say,
2: because I've gone through it too, and I think it's great, you know, like for higher rated players, maybe it's more of a STEM, but I think just to really have a reference of, okay, here's one or two lines that sort of tells me where the pieces should go in the Carlsbad. And if I keep losing Carlsbad structure games, there's no shortage of resources that can tell me more than that. But I'm not going to start by memorizing 50 different subtle move orders of when exactly I should play for the minority attack or F3, E4. I'm just going to more or less put my pieces here and try to play chess. And I do love that approach to learning based on play, which was something I know Nate talked about a lot and really feels like that's a course that sets you
0: up to do that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that too. And I think more chessable authors are getting the message that that's the the best approach. Even if you write an extensive course, having a quick starter chapter and a very well-organized, okay, get up and running approach.
2: Yeah. And if I buy like some of the giant courses, I find that I usually... I usually think they're probably worth the money for the quick starter. And then maybe I use the rest as a reference. But if as I can reference. memorize, you know, like 40 or 50 lines, that's worth the 20 bucks or whatever. Cause yeah. that's a quick starter rep I didn't have. And if I ever get burned by something, I know where to turn to next. But the thought of memorizing all of that just sounds, I'm not nearly good enough at chess to know what to do with that.
0: Yeah. There's no worse feeling than investing a ton of time on an opening in memorizing theory and slogging through a book or a course. And then like finding out you actually don't even like the opening. You're like, I don't really, even though I know that this is playable, I just don't like these positions.
1: This is how I have felt trying to learn the English so many times.
0: Yeah, that's a nuanced one. That's Mm -hmm. a nuanced opening for sure.
1: Yes, I very recently in my spare time, which I have so much of, cracked open JJ dismantling the Sicilian. (laughs) I was laughing at JJ wrote a note for me on the first page that was like, when you finally stop trying to learn the English and learn how to play an open Sicilian, uh-uh, mm. this book will be waiting for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, it'll be there when you're when you're higher rated.
1: Yeah. So what, what else, John, before we get off this topic, do you consider to sort of be in your rep now, maybe also as Black?
0: Yeah, from the Black side. So we've gone the entire show and I haven't mentioned my favorite opening, the Scandinavian Defense. Oh,
1: oh yeah. my uh, gosh. Wait, I for, how did I forget Mandy? that about you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's one thing that's, that's developed into a bit of a meme on my channel over the years. But I love the Scandinavian. I still play it. A lot of people well. associate me with that opening. But I also, yeah, I play the Sicilian. I dabbled in E4, E5 from the black side. I found I didn't like gosh. all the random gambits that you have to be prepared for. Personally, right. that didn't appeal to me. As black against D4, I think personally finding a defense against D4 is a lot tougher than finding one against E4. I think a lot of people can relate to what I just mentioned about that because yeah it seems like against e4 you just have so many options that cater to your particular style but against d4 again it's this control aspect white king direct the events i mean if you want to boil it down to first moves you got d5 and knight f6 pretty much right i mean yeah you can play e6 or f5
1: yeah the best move or the second best move right jj
0: yeah just play knight
2: f6 i don't i don't get the big deal
1: yeah so where did you land then against d4
0: it was kind of haphazard. I mean, I played the Dutch. I played the, the Stonewall variation when I was around seventeen to nineteen hundred. I could tell just from the way, just from the way that you said d five or knight f
2: six, I could tell that you had played the Dutch at some point. Just from the fact <laughs> that you left the Dutch off that list. <laughs>
0: yeah, my results were pretty hit and miss. Like I was improving rapidly, which probably like masked my lack of comfort with those positions. But I think even prior to that, like I was bouncing around a lot. I know I played Queen's line. I played King's Indian a little bit. Spicy didn't like the the lack of space. I think I might have even played the Benoni at some point.
1: You didn't like the lack of space, but now you're putting out YouTube videos on the hedgehog.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's one where I feel you can fight out of your lack of space in a lot of interesting ways.
1: I know. It's nice. I don't mind being a little cramped, but just waiting for that moment, you know, where you yeah. get to... Talk about
0: patience. That That's an opening that'll <laughs> force you to be patient.
1: And the subtler, slower, more patient plans are just simply harder. So it's interesting that you say that, John. That's definitely what I struggle with in those hedgehogs.
0: Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I would say people looking for a defense against D4, try a few different things. Like, no, you can always play, you know, Queen's Gambit Declines, Slav, Semi-Slav. Those tend to be my baseline recommendations for people, cool. the D4, D5 stuff. But it is going to be a little harder, I think, than than the defense against E4 to find something you're really comfortable with.
1: Teach me the Semi-Slav, JJ.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I can try, but it might be like me teaching you the con. As long as it's not the boffinic variation. That's like <laughs> the distillation of the needing to memorize reams of mm-hmm. theory to basically force a draw.
2: A perfect counterpart to my Knight Orphan Grinfeld rep. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh,
0: that's um,
1: awesome. What do you play primarily now, John?
0: Nowadays, I play, yeah, Slav and Semi Slav mainly. Oh. I, I think uh, those structures where you have pawns like c6, e6 in the, in the Slav when you take on c4 that appeals to me because of my Scandinavian experience. There could be something, you know, a lot of people play Karol Khan also play Slav or Semi Slav.
1: I'm never playing as black and not playing C5. I actually don't think mm. I've played C6 on purpose.
2: It was a mouse slip if you did. I've looked this up. I've mouse slipped 35 times on Lee Chess. But
1: I love C5. I love my C5. Maybe that's a crutch. Maybe that's my illusory locus of control.
0: <laughs> I guess if you're playing C5 against, against the D4 openings, it's Benoni or Benko or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I learned it from J.J. Lang, who's on the Zoom right now with us, and Gopal. So I'll essentially play Knight F6, and then I'll play E6, and I'll kind of wait and see how White plays it, but then I really just play C5.
2: Ah.
0: You're trying to posture as a Nimzo-Indian player, and then you immediately take it to Benoni? (laughs) <laughs>
1: exactly. You've got it. I, I,
2: tell, I tell myself that if they play knight c3, I'll play bishop b4, and only if they play knight f3, I'll play c5, and then they play knight c3, and I'm like, well, just remember it. I never really learned the nimzo, so Benoni it is.
1: It's terrifying how much that is my exact internal dialogue.
0: Yeah, that's the nimzo threat repertoire where you don't actually follow through. So
2: I'm wondering, you know, if there's any burning thoughts you want to get out there. Otherwise, the last question I have for you is what is the most infuriating YouTube video comment you've ever seen that
0: keeps <laughs> you up on night?
1: Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: most infuriating YouTube comment. That what like haunts up. you when you go to bed? Well, it's hard when, you know, there's that typical thing where the feedback is 99% positive on stuff you put out, but the 1% can can irk you sometimes. Yes. This This is really petty, but... I put out a video the other day where I played a climbing the rating ladder game and I was white against the caro and I was wearing a vest in the video. And I had an opportunity to make an early pawn sacrifice and I very I thought in my head I'm going to very cleverly title this and I won the game. It was a nice game. In hyphen vesting a pawn against the caro investing. And a couple of people got it but someone wrote in there, I'm just here in the comments to tell you that there's no hyphen in investing.
2: Perfect answer. Amazing answer. That is That's exactly exactly the type of thing that'll annoy
0: me.
1: That's so funny. It's not anything
0: substantive about my content. It's like, I thought I was being really clever with that title and it just fell flat.
1: <laughs> that comment would delight me so much and I would immediately respond in the comments and be like, oh, seriously? I've always thought it did. I've literally always written it that way. And I would just Yeah, just troll down. them back a
2: little bit. Yeah. Maybe like put a misplaced hyphen in one of the words in your comment box. C-O-R hyphen wreck.
1: Get ragged. <wrecked>.
2: Mm. <laughs> That that was the major thing I needed to know. Julia, any lingering thoughts?
1: John, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you wish we had asked you or that you will wish you could talk about more or that you feel excited about?
0: You know, I guess one of the questions I get a lot and like often on podcasts or whatever is, will you go for Grandmaster? Yeah. Or what, what does that look like? So the thing I wanted to say about it, it's always in the back of my head. And I guess I wouldn't get an invite back to your podcast if I did become a Grandmaster. So maybe that's incentive. <laughs> You know, to remain in. You could IM. be on our Adult Improver <laughs> series
2: if you became Grandmaster <laughs> on our other podcast,
0: Perpetual Chest. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but my plan is if I ever do it, I would try to do it in a way that does bring people along for the journey. Maybe with like a sub stack or something I was thinking would be interesting, but something that isn't too intrusive like during the tournaments where I'm not trying to like make game recaps as I do it. Oh God, yeah. So I just wanted to plant that seed now in case, you know.
1: I love you know, that. And honestly, you know. John, if down the line, if you ever want to come back and talk about that.
0: That'd be cool, right? Especially if I was like doing it at the time.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't forget about
0: us. Cool. Planting the seed early. You heard it Excellent. here first.
2: And we, we're willing to reconsider our no grandmaster stance, but only only if they're cool.
0: Yeah. I, I can put in the good word with Danya if you guys want to try to get him on sometime. Okay.
1: Actually, wait, John, could you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, was saying, I don't want to make Julia too nervous.
1: No, I wouldn't be nervous. I just pretend it's part of my shtick. Like, oh, I'm shy. No, Dania I can come on, but I'm just going to deny everything and be like, literally, that's not true. I've-. I'll
0: have like, I'll have receipts. I'll like play all the clips.
1: And I'll be like, those are all Photoshop.
0: I never actually said that. That's a deep fake right there. <laughs> <laughs> this is great.
1: Okay. One more question that I really want to ask you now is what are some materials or things that you do when you're trying to improve your chess game? Where do you kind of dig in? And then also what are some of your all-time favorite chess books that just light you up?
0: So, tools that I use regularly, definitely the Lee Chess study tool and oh, Chessbase. Yeah. I think they're almost on par with each other at this point. I know Nate talked about this too, but for the amateur yeah. players out there, you can you can use Lee chess and the study tool for indefinitely in your chess improvement. I use the database a lot. I love like database mining and finding illustrative games and openings and st- so I'd say those those tools are what I primarily use. I have a ton of chess books. I probably have 300 chess books, but I stopped buying them about, I don't know, five years ago because typical dilemma, I was only reading maybe five to 10% of them, if that, <laughs> totally. cover to cover. So I mostly use books and in, in courses as references these days, unless I'm really thoroughly trying to learn something. As far as books, like one book I just love, I mentioned it on stream all the time, it's not even the most instructive book, but um, it's Mikhail Tal's uh, My Life in Games. Absolutely love that one. I think that's such a great book for really anyone who has an interest in chess, chess history, and wants to hear a firsthand account of you know one of the best players of all time, Not even beyond the chess, like things totally. that were going on in his life. He was such a good writer. So I highly recommend that book. For adult improvers, I really like this book, Amateur to I Am by Jonathan Hawkins. Mm-hmm. Great book. He was an IM at the time he wrote it, and Hawkins later became a GM, but he talks about all the things he did to get to IM as an enthusiastic adult improver, basically.
1: Wow. I'm assuming he didn't start when he was an adult.
0: No. Yeah, I think he he was not like, a, like an absolute prodigy, but he definitely knew how to play as a kid. But he didn't start taking the game seriously until a little bit older. It's a different perspective.
1: Totally. I think that really speaks to what you were saying earlier, almost about this separate skill set, not just of chess knowledge and your own chess expertise, but actually really being able to understand the mindset of someone who is not a chess expert and then being able to communicate the information really effectively kind of based on that insight. So I'll have to check that out. That's a really good recommendation. Yeah,
0: you'll like that one a lot.
1: Cool.
2: From IM to amateur, we will be signing off. <laughs> 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 nice reversal.
1: you.
2: Uh... <laughs> thank you so much this has been this has been an absolute pleasure
0: yeah thank you JJ thank you Julia this was great and if anyone has any questions or anything obviously you can find me on my YouTube channel or or Twitter pretty active on Twitter as well
1: yeah John Bartholomew ever heard of him people
0: at Chessfield's (laughs) bot tag Chessfield's
2: we can have you like take over our Twitter for a day and tweet whatever you want as a promo for this episode
0: I, I might use capital letters by accident it might give you guys away that's cool just don't hyphenate anything (laughs)
1: Okay, actually, that was a question that we were debating asking you, and now I feel comfortable enough to ask you, John. If you had to let one of us have your Twitter password for one day, (laughs) would you let JJ have (laughs) it or
0: me? I would have to say JJ, but I can't deny it would be more fun to have you have it, Julia.
1: That is such a mistake, John.
2: Well, I mean, I knew this was going to happen. He's like afraid of the things that you would say because you've already said what (laughs) they would be, but he doesn't
0: know what the things I would say would be. So it's a total mistake.
1: JJ is way more unhinged than me.
0: (laughs) No, I know JJ can put out some spicy tweets too, but yeah, I guess now you got me second guessing. Now I don't know. JJ would ruin your life. Yeah. Well,
2: I don't know if I would say everything that I could because I like you, but I mean, you might like wake up to a lot more Twitter wars yeah. with people and a lot of DMs saying, I we
0: were friends. Exactly what I need. Yes. Yeah.
2: Just drama in my life.
1: And if, if I was in charge, John, I one, would wingman you. You would wake up to DMs from really cool women. Yeah.
2: And saying, I thought we were just friends.
0: Right. Right.
1: You can DM me the password later.
2: One, one, one.
1: Yeah.
0: As always,
2: thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest.
1: where 2 plus 2 equals 5, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you.
2: Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia.
1: We would be yeah. truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review.
2: And tell all of your friends.
1: <laughs> yeah, all of them.
2: And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership yeah. to LeechS.org.
1: Unlocking all of their features.
2: Even that? Especially
1: that, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod.
2: Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate yeah. to message any feedback,
1: no matter how critical or scathing,
2: directly yeah. to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. At <laughs> chess problem one. Yeah.
0: I like it when it comes up just organically and be a little more coy in how I reveal, you know, my very large. Like it is a huge, no doubt.